So we want to make sure that evidence-based care is there. The medication-assisted treatment is there as, as part of a protocol. Psychosocial therapy is part of a protocol. Using the proper thing, just talk therapy in a general concept isn't going to work. It has to be very focused. Someone understands addiction. Evidence of what? What is the evidence we're talking about? Uh, and the evidence for evidence-based is what happens to the person while they're taking the medicine. It's not what happens to them later. What, where do they go? And what I'm encouraging is to have an evidence-based assessment of what the consequences are, what the long-term outcome is of all of these treatments. Which treatments are getting people into stable recovery? If we're talking about dealing with an epidemic, we've got to deal with those people as individuals for their lifetimes, for long periods of time. That's why I say five years. So evidence base of while they're in the treatment is good, but it's not what we really want. Is it evidence of getting them into stable recovery or not? Thank That's you. the question that has to be asked. Welcome back to Outside Council. Today, I'm sitting down with Brian, jack of many trades who has lived a colorful life. For over a decade, Brian suffered from opioid addiction, first to Oxycontin, then to heroin. Throughout the period of his active addiction, Brian was a successful, high-earning executive. Then he and his wife, who also suffered from opioid addiction, hit rock bottom. She overdosed and almost died. After that, Brian and his wife entered treatment. Treatment saved their lives. Brian has been sober for the last several years. And in that span, he has started a successful business and is running for sheriff in Travis County, Texas. Brian speaks passionately about the fact that opioid addiction is a disease that can and must be treated, not a moral failing to be stigmatized. He's here to tell his amazing story. Hello, Brian. Hey, how's it going? It's going great, thanks. Hey, listen, I'm Jeffrey B. Simon, and welcome to our show, Outside Council. Thanks for having me. Tell us a bit about yourself, please. I live here in Austin, Texas. Recently had a uh, new daughter. And uh, before that, I had a, let's see, a 14-year corporate tech sales career. Lived a few lives, huh? Yeah, for sure. We're going to talk about some of those lives. Is that okay? Yeah, of course. I understood you to say your family uh, comes from Poland. Is that right? Yeah. So uh, I'm a first generation American. My father was born in a German displaced persons camp uh, in 1948. And we came over on Ellis Island. They spoke three languages, but none of them English. And they, as, as most Jewish grandparents tell you, be a doctor or a lawyer. I went into tech sales and most of them are doctors and lawyers or finance. <laughs> well, as they would say in Yiddish, you and I are mishpocha. My two sons are the great grandsons of Polish Holocaust survivors. Maybe we'll figure out what town later. <laughs> right, exactly. I, I do want to give a little more background to our audience about what you do now, and then we'll go back and talk about sure. you know, what, where, yeah. where you've been. There's a few things I do now. Projection mapping and lighting design for events. That's one business. I also have a gallery showing actually coming up here on South Congress at Soko Modern. So I'll have four pieces in that gallery showing. How old's your daughter? Three months, three months old. Oh, she's brand new. Congratulations. She's brand new. Thank you. Yeah, yeah. Just sleeping through the night. 
Do I understand that you are also among these many talents studying to pursue a career in law enforcement? I am running for sheriff in Travis County. You're running for sheriff. I'm running for sheriff. A sheriff is an elected position in Travis County. It only requires two things to be sheriff of Travis County, if you've read the rules, a high school education and living here for six months. If you think how Texas works, what does a sheriff do? They likely were like an outlaw somewhere else. So the problem is that we've moved to this politicized game, and I just don't feel that that's the way that law enforcement should be handled in general. I feel that I can help make change without having to do too much politics. How so? After what we've experienced in the last couple of years of police militarization and then Black Lives Matter, the impact of policing on society used to say protect and serve on their cars, and neither of those things happen now. My coffee trailer was stolen by two people, and I found it on Facebook Marketplace, and I tracked it down. I set up a buy, and the sheriff's department of Travis County showed up and left before they set up for the buy. So I was left there without them towing it to deal with it all on my own. And those type of things are not supposed to be what our policing is for. So I feel that, number one, I can easily fix issues because I tracked it down and got it back. And uh, I don't think our current environment of policing is serving the people in the best manner. You think law enforcement needs to be reimagined? I think law enforcement needs to go back to the idea of actually being part of the community. Well, you're not alone in that view. Have you studied what they're doing in Minneapolis and and other places of reimagined Which we're forced into it. I just think it's... uh, it's not changing everything, it's changing the mindset for people. And I think um, the people, when they see a cop behind them these days, or I want, when they see the sheriff's department, I want us to be the ones that you want to call, that we're the ones that are going to help and not just either write a ticket or arrest you. Um, so I'm not saying that that doesn't need to happen. There are obviously reasons for everything, but, um, and I'm not gonna put people at risk, but there's a better way to do things. One of the ways in which you have special insight in the plight of others is that you yourself are a recovering opioid addict. Is that correct? That's correct. How long have you been uh, in recovery? Seven years. Congratulations. That is a tremendous accomplishment. Thank you. Let's start with when you began taking prescription opioids. I was in college and one of my friends was pre-med at another school. And I introduced him to a friend and he was so excited when he heard he could get Oxycontin and he left me one. And I didn't even know what it was when the first time I took it. That wasn't my addiction. That was just experimenting college. Try it. You know, most college kids do. And that is how I found it. It's hard to track an addiction. I think it is probably for most people, but it was three, two or two, two or three years later that I was in a bad place and I was offered it and it seemed like the right solution for the time. Was there a point where you were taking Oxycontin and you had a realization, I'm addicted? I don't think it's that you realize you're addicted until you want to stop. I think that's really what it is for most people when they really want to get out of the situation they're in, that they realize that they've been doing it. So I, I don't know that there's a moment. I don't have a specific moment. I think it's just something that happens when you actually realize that you can't continue your life necessarily in the way in the manner that you did before without it. How long did you take OxyContin? Seven, eight years, yeah. Did you find that OxyContin was easy to come by when you were looking for it? Extremely. At the times uh, during the 2000s, it was so prevalent. People are leaving 
pills of things in your dorm room. It's like having it in your mom's medicine cabinet. You might try it. This may be a hard question to answer, but for our listeners who may themselves not have ever personally experienced opioid addiction, what does that condition feel like? Have you ever been thirsty? I mean, like really the desert thirsty, the needs of your body are changed. And I think that's the best way to associate it. Imagine just being in the desert with just no water. And that's all you can think about to continue living. It's a want that becomes a need. Did you experience withdrawal symptoms when you didn't have enough Oxycontin available to you? Everyone feels physical addiction if they've taken a drug long enough, in, in my experience. For your listeners, I think the best way to associate it is like, imagine the most intense workout soreness, the most worst nausea you've ever had, the worst experience in a bathroom you've ever had, um, plus think, think fever on top of that, so cold sweating. And that, that'll give uh, listeners an idea of what it's like for a physical withdrawal. Did you ever transition from prescription opioids to the use of another opiate, heroin? When Oxycontin was no longer available, all of the dealers switched to heroin. Right. So the sub suburbs were flooded. And when I say flooded, I mean, just like Oxycontin, the suburbs were flooded with heroin all of a sudden. So Obviously, you're going to switch when it's more affordable and it's a drug that you need to not be sick. So, yes. Did you, when you were in the throes of addiction or in the throes of withdrawal symptoms, ever just have some moment of either realization or desperation or both where you said, how the hell did I get to this place? Of course. <laughs> I think I have that experience all the time, but not at the same level. Um, yeah, of, of course, if you're going to get clean, what you need to actually get off of a drug is desire to better yourself and better your life and not do that. Did you ever overdose on either Oxycontin or heroin? No. Did you ever see anyone overdose? When I was in college, I did. And I actually had to give him full CPR and mouth to mouth to bring him back at the time because there wasn't any Narcan or any of that stuff around. So I have seen it. I Personally, I've never, I haven't overdosed. What was it that moved you to go into treatment for your opioid addiction? I wanted to change my life. My marriage was not going well at the time, and I wanted to be done with it. My ex-wife finally got clean, and I wanted to get clean, and I got clean. So you were married to someone who herself was an opioid addict? As most addictions go in like codependent addictions, it's usually two people to be able to hide and, uh, you know, exist in that world and keep it going. So, you know, we fed off each other's addictions and it worked, obviously, in terms of like living a life. Codependency is a common aspect and yeah, enablers. Uh, I think I see that more these days with friends and things like that, that they're just looking for people to enable them to continue doing what they're doing. When you married, were you yet addicted to opioids? No was your wife no. and you both transitioned to addiction, the disease of addiction during your marriage. I wouldn't necessarily call addiction a disease. I would say it's more of a human condition, to be honest with you. Okay. Because to, to relate it just to opiates is to denigrate the idea that most people aren't addicted to something. And I'm not trying to put opioids in a great light. I'm saying that all addictions have many of the same, many of the same characteristics of what we're talking about. People are addicted to coffee in the morning, they're addicted to cigarettes, they're addicted to, you know, sex, running, working out, 
you know, CrossFit, whatever it might be, but they don't recognize that because it's a positive in their life. And so many things are addictive and negative. And that's what I think we face with many of the drugs that we see today. Now, at a physiological level, opioid addiction is the permanent chemical alteration of the brain's motivational priorities, that there are physiological changes which result in the inability to produce dopamine naturally. And the result is, is that there has to be external sourcing of an opioid agonist like buprenorphine or suboxone. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, of course. Have you had medication assisted treatment like buprenorphine or suboxone as part of your recovery? So I, I think the whole recovery industry needs to be examined because when I tried to go to recovery locally, and it is not an easy thing for people to find a place that will provide the services or the drugs that you need to get off of it. And not to say that buprenorphine is better, but these controlled programs are restrictive and there's too much financial incentive for the healthcare industry and the way they've set, been set up. That's, that's how I see that. It's not readily available. It's easier to buy buprenorphine on the black market and recover yourself than it is to go through a recovery program if you are a person with a real job. Well, I couldn't agree with you more that we want treatment services to be more available for people who suffer from opioid addiction. What I'm interested in is what might be your more nuanced point of view, which is whether or not you think medication-assisted treatment the actual treatment of opioid addiction with lower dose opioids is a useful treatment methodology or not? It is when taken on a shorter timeline. The way that it's done currently is just moving people to another drug and getting them addicted to that. I went through a seven-day withdrawal program initially. There are longer stretches. It shouldn't be over 30 days, I'll tell you right now. I've seen it done. I've helped friends get off after. And the way it's structured is let me sell you a bunch more drugs. So in your view, in your experience, and tell me if I've got it right, you don't think medication-assisted treatment are useful for the treatment of opioid addiction beyond 30 days, and to the extent that this is cornerstone treatment. They've structured it in a way that like, you are now addicted to a new drug, and they can keep getting you to take it. I don't think it's actually structured in a way to help people take, get off in the way that the, the drug manufacturer, the drug companies are manufacturing these lower dose. I think it is an extremely useful tool that should be available, but I think it needs to be structured in a way that actually weans people off. Many people share your view that it's a hell of a thing that opioid manufacturers like Purdue Pharma are also in the medication assisted treatment for opioid addiction. You know, that's, a, that's, that's a real issue. A pill for every ill, right? Exactly. Where did you seek treatment for your opioid addiction? I sought a good treatment program in California. Um, I needed to just get away. And it's really hard to get away. I had to actually take vacation time because I didn't want to tell anyone. The stigma associated with recovery is ridiculous in this country. Like you don't come back to your work. You tell all of like, your associates that, hey, I was in treatment the last 30 days. It was real nice. So I, I found a place that had a recovery program that provided services that I was looking for. And I scheduled a pretty much a vacation a month and a half out. You were in the computer technology business when you sought treatment for opioid addiction, right? Yes. 
And you were at work, this high functioning valued person while you were privately in the throes of opioid addiction. The whole thing about the term high functioning and all this is just, are you able to continue your life? Many people are. It doesn't mean that they need this addiction on their back. And I, I bet you, if you look at a handful of people out of 10, I bet you three of them are currently addicted to a substance in a room, but no one knows about it. I, I think that our society has vilified and criminalized and um, ostracized the idea of anyone being able to, to live their life and do something. It's easier to just put it in the background and just push it, put it on that shelf. And, and you do that when no one's looking and that's fine. People need to understand that it is everyone around you. It's not just Hollywood. It's not just that executive. It's not just your son. It's everyone is a victim of, can be a, a victim of addiction or however you want to say it. I'm not a victim. You just can be addicted to something. Brian, how did you come to that point where you said, I've got to get help. I'm going to treatment for opioid addiction. The truth is my ex-wife was really trying to get clean. And I was pretending that I already had. And she found, it was a Pulp Fiction moment. She found drugs in my jacket and used them. And I took her to this Italian restaurant and she almost fell asleep in her soup. And I was like, is that what I'm doing? That was my like, come to the, let's say Jesus moment. I was just like hundred percent. This is not working for me. I don't want to be in this lifestyle. I don't want to be doing this. Because of your education and talent, you could afford to go to treatment. You had to schedule it. And I understand that, but you had the resources, I was, right? I was lucky that I had good health insurance and enough wherewithal and knowledge to get myself into a good program for myself. Obviously, the opioid epidemic is worse than ever. We have more overdose deaths annually now than we had the year before, we had the year before, we had ever before. And of course, the reason is, is because uh, illicit fentanyl is laced ubiquitously, insidiously in street pills and heroin and meth and coke and street drugs of virtually every description, right? Exactly. If it were up to you, if you had the power to do it, would you decriminalize heroin so that it could be regulated and obtained through dispensaries rather than laced with fentanyl? I personally don't think the U.S. could ever move in that direction just based on our society. I know I've seen it work in Amsterdam and Portugal. I don't think we're in, currently in a place where that number one that could ever happen or be successful in the way it would be implemented in this country. What would have to change to make it work? In our current state of the USA, I don't think it's, I don't see it workable in any way that it could be implemented. I don't see that possible. That possible. It's interesting that you say that because, uh, you know, there have been op-eds going back and forth about whether or not to decriminalize heroin in order to purify its supply. Decriminalization right. is one thing, uh, legalization is another. Services I've seen that work that reduce see, disease spread, like needle programs do work. These are things that can work. Narcan with the cops can reduce overdose. There are things that a sheriff could do to improve things. And there are things that society could do to improve things. I don't see a major shift, especially currently with our Supreme Court and political environment that we are going to all of a sudden be uh, more open to a different kind of lifestyle. What should we do to reduce our skyrocketing opioid epidemic? 
we need to reduce the amount of fentanyl coming into this country, number one, and be more careful about that because we didn't have these level of overdoses until we had all of this illicit fentanyl coming into the US. We had, I mean, there were overdoses, but we've seen the spike over the last few years. That, that's important. That's not just borders. That's just, if you've ever seen Breaking Bad, it's precursor chemicals. These are things that we could actually look at, but no one wants to. I mean, that, that's a higher level of, of enforcement that no one wants to get into because that's chemical, that's chemical companies. I mean, do you want to face their lobbyists? I'm sure you face enough of the pharmaceuticals. <laughs> oh, yes. <laughs> so oh, yeah. I think that's where we are with that. And I don't have a, there is no simple solution to this. Um, it's, a, it's, it's changing societal norms, changing the way that people see recovery, the way that recovery is offered in this country. And, uh, you know, like Amsterdam would offer, you talk about legalization, it was giving them jobs, giving them a purpose, and again, giving them the drugs to actually get out of it. That's a completely different thing than decriminalization. That's an entire social program that no one in this country is ready to face to actually fix these issues. Well, you're absolutely right that there is a difference between decriminalization and legalization because decriminalization really is about what law enforcement puts its time and resources into and what it doesn't, as opposed to legalization and regulation. That's a, you're dead right on that distinction. Now, I know you have offered your sense that we'll never legalize heroin. So it's not even a conversation worth having. I don't know that we'd ever not legalize heroin. I mean, the, the world 100 years from now, who knows? I mean, look, legalized gambling, I bet you we have that pretty soon. Um, but what I'm saying is I don't think that in our current society, that any legalization program would necessarily benefit the actual issue that we're dealing with. Uh, I can give you an example here in Texas because my bubby eats gummies now for her pain to reduce the amount of opiates that she eats. And she's in New York where it's legal. So I helped her find uh, uh, an alternative that, that helped her so she doesn't have to eat as many opiates for her pain. She's 101 this year. So God bless her. But uh, our the medical marijuana system here in Texas is controlling so much of it that even if you if you were a patient with most things you wouldn't be able to do it here so that's a that's a healthcare issue that you're like oh let's legalize it it will never you'll never be able to get there you'll never be able to get it so i just don't see in the current environment that this would solve any issues i think it would just be a lot of money spent and then no one would actually it would, wouldn't do any good in, in our current environment can we and should we legalize fentanyl test strips rather than treat them as illegal drug paraphernalia. 100%. Uh, drug testing is something that I believe should be offered because I've seen issues. I mean, when I was in college, uh, there was like ecstasy and things like that. And there were organizations that wanted to test and come to these events to make sure the kids were not eating drugs that are tainted. Why wouldn't you give society the capacity to make sure that they're not getting something that's going to kill them? I well, of course, because because the ability to test for fentanyl encourages the use of street drugs and heroin. Haven't you heard that argument? We can we can take that one offline. Right. <laughs> it's a dumb argument. It's a, it's a really terrible dumb argument. argument. It's a dumb argument. You know what I mean? Um, you know, because I have a uh, gas meter in my car, it means I need to use more gas. Like that's the dumbest thing I've ever heard. Well, I'm at half a tank. I should probably fill it up. Like whatever. Well, it, right, of course, there's no data to support that thesis, just like there's never been data that selling condoms right, promotes 
sexual activity rather than yeah, no, exactly right, giving pro provide me, right provide safety and uh, prevent unwanted pregnancy i've seen i've seen programs that allow like the needle exchange programs people that are, are much more readily to go get a clean needle than use the used ones and that um i was never an intravenous drug user but i've seen this in the community and I, it, that's what i mean like why aren't we doing those things to prevent it if it becomes an issue it's fucking insane that's to me like that's insane and then we have hypodermic needles on the beach because we don't have an exchange program you're worried about the needles and shit on the street then why didn't you give them a place they could put them without getting arrested surprise they threw them out in you know in the sand welcome to jersey you know it's like uh, i don't they want this like solution but they're not offering uh you know any way to get there that's what i think about a lot of this not testing things and isn't it because they are marginalizing the problem by saying that it is the problem of people who are on the margins of society rather than good people of strong will who work hard. I think that is a simplification of maybe some mindsets. I think many of these people don't understand the drugs in the first place. They don't know what they're talking about. They have no idea. Until it affects them, they're not going to change their mind. And that's the truth. Until their kid goes out and buys some other drug that's laced with fentanyl, they're not going to care about anyone testing it. Most of our elected officials are only concerned about who's buying their lunch, to be honest with you, in what I've seen. I've been a registered lobbyist before for a tech company because we were spending money on people that were of like a mayor because they spend, you know, I mean, money on school systems. But to see their some are great and care and most don't give a shit and just want to get reelected. So that's our political system these days. It's not one party or the other. It's 90% of our elected officials are not really interested in doing any, making any real changes to society. That's not who I see going into politics these days in, in a majority sense of most people that I see going there. Are we losing the fight in the opioid epidemic? I think we lost it a long time ago. I mean, look at the addiction, look at look at the deaths we're facing, fentanyl. Like, yeah, I think I think we've lost that fight. The war on drugs, I think that was lost a long time ago. But the war on drugs was a basically jail and bail them approach and then not bail, put them away for a long time. Yeah, just jail, just jail them and privatize. Right. Yeah. And the more modern approach is an understanding that the root cause of the opioid epidemic is the human condition of addiction rather than a criminal mind. And that you have to treat that condition and understand that people who are addicted to opioids are patients, not criminals. No, I agree. And I know that because Dr. Raul Gupta is the new drug czar and he is um, both a medical doctor and master's of public health and steeped in expertise in the opioid epidemic. And that is his approach on behalf of the Biden administration. Having said all that, is it hopeless? I don't think anything's hopeless. Anything can change. I, I just don't have a quick solution to any of this. There isn't a quick solution. Uh, we, have, we have institutional issues that large scale across our society, whether it be healthcare or the way that we handle these things that need to be addressed. You know, if, if you were to police other health issues, like it, it, it's not, that's not the way to handle the situation. And we need to look at it with new eyes and fresh eyes. That's what, it's not that we've lost the war. We aren't fighting a war. That's the difference.
we aren't fighting a war. That's, it's, that's, that's the mindset that needs to change in society. I think it's interesting that you put it that way because you think there is something that is symptomatic of a mindset problem that in dealing with the opioid epidemic, we use language like combating it, fighting Disease, it. crush it, all this stuff. And, you know, but, you know, when we find another disease, we don't combat ACL, we pour water on our heads. So like, I just don't understand how society can handle like, and support one thing and then look at this and demonize it. And it's like, I, it, it, that's a society and an institutional issue that we need to address just overall. But, you know, again, that's, a, that's more of an existential question, I'd say. When you are the next sheriff of Travis County, what insights have you gleaned from your period of active opioid addiction and seven years of recovery that you think will inform you in a unique and better way in that job? I think experience and time usually equals wisdom. So being able to understand and empathize allows me to look at a problem and actually solve it in a way that might actually help the community versus a a short-term whatever solutions currently offered of shoving people into something they don't want or that doesn't work. Um, Again, it's, it's understanding what worked for me doesn't, it doesn't mean it works for everyone, but being able to look at what worked for other people and other experiences gives me the wisdom to at least encounter a new issue and create a solution to it that may actually work out. Empathy and personalization of a problem as opposed to externalization of that problem is really important when you have the power of public office. Wouldn't you agree? I agree completely. Do you share your recovering heroin addict? No, it's usually not what you talk about when you, you know, have the play date. That's not usually the first conversation. It's like, hey, I, uh, hey, I think people think that addiction defines them too much. Like I'm a recovering addict. Hi, I'm an AA. That's just part of who you are. And I think people have put that too much on, oh, well, he's in recovery. It's like, he's just a person. I mean, I, I, I don't think that that makes up a big portion of who I am. It, it, it's transformed who I've become, but it's not who you are in that time. And it's not who I am today. It's just, it's part of me that I carry with me, that experience. What do you want our audience to know, if anything, that we haven't discussed because I didn't ask you the right question yet? When you go to recovery, an important part of the physicality of it, of any drug, is finding a new routine that works for yourself. So exercise, massage, acupuncture, and therapy are essential and good diet. You need a community first, though. Like, that's it. You need the support and not everyone's going to have this, but these are the essential ingredients, I think, for uh, a positive recovery from any addiction is to have uh, the lifestyle changes that are necessary, which includes exercise, eating right. Sometimes it's just a massage. Sometimes it's things that feel good. Sometimes it's just sex. There's nothing wrong with these things. It's, it's community. It's love. But I think people need to examine that when they're going to shove someone into an Idaho facility with you know a cot in a corner like it's a jail cell. That's not going to help anyone. You made a really interesting point that I think needs just a moment more focus because I hadn't thought about it before. 
and I should have. Just as it is absurd and cruel to stigmatize addiction, people as addicts, as though that defines who they are. It's patronizing to think of someone who is in recovery as a recovering addict, as though that is emblematic of their whole being. Exactly. When in fact, it's just a part of their experience, right? Exactly. It's just part of them, like me having a divorce under my belt or men who have three. It doesn't define who they are. It's just part of their experience. And, and that's what I say, because it, it's, I, I said, mentioned divorce because it's something that's very hard to get to. It's difficult, but that many people experience in their lives. So to equate that, that, that negative, it doesn't define you. I don't talk about my ex-wife unless I'm like, where is that? wedding thing she stole like it doesn't matter it's not is an important part of who i am at this point it formed who i am it's something i carry with me but it doesn't define who i am today and with my new family pretty much you've been on a hell of a journey and i appreciate you taking a few minutes along that road to provide your experiences and insights with us because i learned some things today and i'm grateful to you for that i'm glad thanks for having me Thank you for being on Outside Council. Thank you to my guest, Brian. Tune in next week to the season finale of Outside Council, where I interview one of the true heroes in the battle that is the American opioid epidemic, Major Patricia Cole. Patricia is an EMT in Lee County, Kentucky, who has dedicated her life and career as an EMT to opioid harm reduction a calling that found her after losing her son to an accidental opioid overdose. You won't want to miss this heartfelt and empowering discussion about what we all can and should be doing to turn the tide in this battle. If you or someone you know is struggling with opioids, please visit www.addictioncenter.com to learn more about the available resources in your community. This podcast is produced by Shannon McDees of Revel and Convey and Larry Shivana. The opinions expressed on outside counsel are neither legal nor medical advice. The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the speakers, guests, experts, and or host. They do not expressly nor necessarily reflect the opinion of any institution with which I am or ever have been a member and should never be attributed as such. Thank you for tuning in to another episode of Outside Council. I'm Jeffrey B. Simon.